And welcome to the History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is episode 16, Meet the Hothroids. In this episode, we will introduce the Hothroid dynasty and talk about Mirian III's rise to power and his interactions with the Sassanid Empire. I will make note that most of the information we have concerning his life does come from the Georgian Chronicles, and as such, may be slightly fictional. It is the only information we have, so I will try to match the names to people whose existence has some other kind of corroboration. If there are things that the Chronicles state that are just too contradictory or don't make sense, I will mention them in the story and will continue on with the narrative. Just because details are misconstrued, it doesn't mean that there isn't a grain of truth within the Chronicles. In episode 14, we closed out the story of the male Parnavazid Arshakid dynasty and saw how King Ashbagor's defeat at the hand of the Sassanids led to the doom of the Parnavazid Arshakid dynasty. In episode 15, we took a long look at Lazika through the eyes of the Roman governor Arian of Nicomedia and at the Gothic invasions into the area. Finally, this all culminated in a Sassanid incursion into Kartli and Igrisi, and that is where we will begin. 258 AD, Persia. We begin our story in the court of the Sassanid Shahanshah, the King of Kings, Shapur I. A sense of frustration permeated throughout the Sassanid court as the Armenian, Kartveli, and Northern Tribal Alliance repelled the Sassanid army time after time and frequently invaded and pillaged Persia. The Shahanshah had no chance to resist this combined Caucasian onslaught against his people and nation. Shapur had had enough. He brought his vassals and viceroys from all his lands to his court, and with them, searched for a way to end these Caucasian raids and invasions. The motivation for these nobles? Rewards and honors for anyone who could offer a useful solution. Among the nobles in Shapur's court stood out a man named Anak Pahlavi. Anak was a relative of the Armenian king Khosrov II. Rising to his feet, he raised his voice and gave an impassioned plea to the court. He explained to the nobles and to the Shahanshah that everything happening to the Persians was the fault of his relative, King Khosrov II. It was because of Khosrov that the Persian army was all but destroyed and that the Persian denizens lived in terror. With the Caucasian alliance constantly gaining in strength, they, the Persians, could no longer withstand them. They had to do something drastic, and that was to soothe King Khosrov by peace, treaties, and paying tribute. The court did not realize that Anak Pahlavi's intentions were not sincere. Taking a chance to stand next to Shapur, Anak whispered to his liege that these words were false, and if the Shahanshah would give him but a moment of his valuable time, then the true plan would be made known to him. The rest of the court approached Shapur for their own personal meetings. Anak waited and waited for Shapur's response before secretly receiving word to approach the great Shahanshah. He then outlined his insidious plan. As Khosrov's relative, 
he would feign an argument with Shapur and move to Armenia with his whole family to gain Khosrov's trust. Once he had it, he would find a way to dispose of Khosrov and, if need be, give his life for the completion of the plan. Shapur was thrilled with the plan to remove this Armenian thorn in his side and gave his seal of approval to Anak Pahlavi. Days passed and Anak prepared for his departure to Armenia. He was joined by his brother and their families. They left Persia under the impressions of a breakdown of relations with Shapur, probably over his expressed desire to appease Khosrov II. Anak and his family arrived at Khosrov's capital, Vakharshapat. Anak did everything to mark their arrival to the city as genuine to him. The Armenian king, seeing such a large, familiar entourage arriving, assumed that they were being truthful as they told their story of their dismissal. Hosrev received the family with great honor and paid them homage by raising Anak to be second-in-command of Armenia under Hosrov himself. They then retreated to Hosrov's winter palace and lived in happiness and tranquility during this time. Winter turned to spring and spring turned to summer. Khosrov made his way out from his winter palace to the town of Arat to prepare for further raids on Persia as campaigning season was opening in the region. As the preparations began to stress Khosrov, he decided that a hunting trip was in order and he invited Anak and his brother to join him. They agreed to join and prepared to execute their sinister plans. They wore their rain cloaks and hid their swords beneath them. Khosrov led the duel deep into the woods in search of whatever game was available. Khosrov stalked after the animals, searching for tracks and keeping his eyes peeled. In the meantime, Anak and his brother could only stare at their prey. Khosrov tracked his own, harboring no suspicion within himself that he had become prey to someone else. Anak and his brother pulled their swords out and came upon Khosrov. They struck their blades into the heart of the distracted Armenian king, and his blood began to flow out of him. Khosrov attempted to flee from his attackers, but Anak and his brother continued striking the Armenian king. They removed their blades from his body, and once his movement had stopped, they fled from the site of their assassination. However, this was not their only crime. As they rushed away, they came across Khosrov's wife and struck her down as well. The Armenian nobles wondered what happened to their king, who had not yet returned from his hunt. They searched for him and came upon his body. They became enraged and organized a pursuit against the regicidal brothers and caught up to them at a bridge. They flanked Anak and his brother on both sides of this bridge, which loomed over a gorge, removing any chance of a successful escape for the siblings. They approached the duo and hacked them down. Khosrov was not yet avenged. The nobles stormed the residence of the duo and struck down all of Anak's relatives. Only two children managed to survive. They were spirited away by their tutors, one to Persia and the other to Greece. The tutor who went to Greece saved a child named Grigor, who will become known in Armenian history as Saint Gregory the Illuminator, the Christianizer and patron saint of Armenia. The news of Khosrov II's death reached Shapur I. He was elated that the thorn in his side was now gone. Khosrov and his father Tirdat II had done much to earn the wrath of the Sassanids and Persian revenge against the Armenians was in store. The days in which the Armenians could resist Persian might were gone. With the death of Khosrov, 
any alliances that were formed would be destroyed until the succession of the realm was resolved. Taking advantage of the confusion, Shapur I gathered his forces and stormed into Armenia, meeting little resistance. He came to the capital and killed all the relatives of the Armenian kings, save for two. The Armenian soldiers managed to save a small boy named Tirdat and a girl named Khosrovidukt, the son and daughter of Khosrov. Tirdat was taken to Rome and was brought up there in classic Roman fashion, while Khosrovidukt was taken to a Cappadocia to be raised by an Armenian noble family. Armenia was now in the hands of the Sassanid Empire, and in 260 AD, Shapur's gaze turned over to the kingdom of Kartli, led by Mirdat II. His forces stormed into Kartli, and with the Caucasian alliance now gone, managed to oust a Roman allied king. With the Romans reeling from the loss of Emperor Valerian to the Sassanids, reinforcements would not come. Shapur installed an ally, Amazas III, as king of Kartli. There we covered his reign until 265, when Shapur was ousted from Kartli and Amazas III was killed. Ashpagur I became king after Mirdat perished in 265 AD, not long after regaining his throne, and in 284 AD, the chroniclers report that Ashpagur invaded Persia with his allies. It's at this point we announce our first contradiction, as the chronicles state that the Dushahanshah, Bahram II, invaded Kartli at this time. The result for Ashpagur remained the same, and he lost his army in a battle against a superior Persian army. Reeling from his defeat, Ashpagur retreated to Ossetia to gather troops and succumbed in exile. Leaving no male heir, everything fell to Ashpagur's daughter, Abishura. This being the time period it is, a woman was unable to inherit the Kartveli throne, for now at least, and things are dire. The Spaspeto, Maejan, gathered the Aristavi of Kartli and brought them to the capital city of Mitischieta. Things were grim in Mitischieta. The Aristavi were filled with grief at the loss of their king and their army. They then voted to not give in to the grief they felt and to put their energy towards getting rid of the misfortune that they faced and the danger of total Sassanid control. Maejan the Saspeto spoke to the Aristavi and attempted to bolster their morale, saying, quote, If we had forces equal to a third of the Persians, we would give our lives and resist them. And if our king had an heir, or there was some descendant of our kings deserving to reign, we would fortify ourselves in our towns and fortresses and would, if necessary, eat human flesh to survive, like our forefathers did. But the bad times have come and have brought us such sorrows, like the murder by the Persians of the great king of Armenia, and a seizure by them of Armenia to which our kingdom was allied. The king of the Persians has opened his mouth and wants to swallow the whole world. We have nobody to withstand him. We are left as orphans, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, my decision is this. Let us submit to him and ask him to make his son our king. Let us implore him to marry his son to the daughter of our Ashpagor. We will inform him of the origin of this woman from the Nebrotids, the famous Arshakids, and our kings, the Parnavazids. Let us ask him for the right to follow the faith of our fathers, not letting the Persians mingle with us and rule us. Maybe he will comply with our request and treat us well. But if he deprives us of the faith of our fathers, raises the Persians above us, and destroys the relatives of our kings, 
Then it will be better to die than to see all of that. Then we will stick to our fortresses and towns and die, every one of us. End quote. The Aristavi were left in awe of Maeja Naspaspeto. His speech was moving and hit them right in their core. There was a reason that Aspargur had chosen him to be the king's deputy. All agreed with Maejan's plan, and they sent envoys to the Persian king, Baram II, to inform him of the Kartveli decision. Upon the arrival of the envoys to the court of Baram II, the Shahanshah began inquiring about Mitesheta. He asked about the size of the city, the amount of troops they could gather, and how close the Ossetians were to the north. On top of all these logistical items, he asked about Abishura's descendants. The envoys repeated how she was ascended from the Nebrotids, the Arshakids, and most importantly, the Parnavazids. She came from a long line of royal families and would make whoever married her a rather important figure in Kartli. Baram liked everything he heard from the Kartveli envoys and, after some thought, acquiesced to their request. He provided Kartli with a king descended from the Sassanids, bastard son to Baram himself. To Baram, Gaining Kartli in such a simple fashion, with no rebellion, was a massive gain to the Sassanid Empire. Kartli's position, along with the size of Mitesheta, would make it easy to wage war against the northern Caucasian tribes if necessary, and to put down any rebellions in the rest of the Caucasus if need be. Bahram swore an oath to the Kartveli envoys to give him his son and not put the Persians above the Kartveli in this region. Once the envoys left, he gathered his entourage and made his way to Mitesheta. Fanfare roared throughout Mitesheta as Baram arrived into the city. As he proceeded through the streets and made his way to the royal residence, he was greeted by Maejan the Spaspeto and the rest of the Aristavi, along with King Aspikor's daughter, Abishura, who had recently returned from her hiding place in Samshvilde. Accompanying Baram was Miran, a young boy of the age of seven years, which was significant because the Armazi faith had seven idols. He was a son given to him by his favorite concubine, Embaram's supposed firstborn. Miran and Abishura stood beside each other, and what an odd sight they must have been. This young pair of children were crowned as the rightful monarchs of Kartli. While we don't know Abishura's exact age, she must not have been much older or younger than Miran. The Kartveli hopes for the continuation of the Parnavazid bloodline rested on this young couple. The Kartveli must be led by someone of the Parnavazid bloodline, even if they are contained within someone from a completely different dynasty. As long as the bloodline from their deified King Parnavaz flows strongly, then the Kartveli kingdom would remain strong. This marriage, however, brought about the beginning of the Hostroid dynasty. As I mentioned earlier, Miran was the firstborn and bastard son of Baram II, given to him by his favorite concubine. How factual is this, though? This information comes from the Georgian Chronicles, and there is a chance he may have come from the Sassanid dynasty, or that he may be descended from the Miranid dynasty of Persia, one of the great seven families. While his origins are shrouded in antiquity, we'll continue to think of him as the bastard son of Baram. There is no evidence against it, and it makes sense that Baram would place his son on a throne to help solidify his power over the Kartveli kingdom. This marks the beginning of Miran's reign, now stylized in Georgian as Mirian III. This Kartveli king would go on ruling from 284 to 361 AD, for a grand total of 77 years. This beats Parnavas I's record of 65 years, 
and marks Mirian III as the longest reigning Kartveli king. Now, about the name of the dynasty, Hosroid. Why was that chosen to mark Mirian's dynasty? Well, in the Chronicles, Baram II is identified as Hosrov, which is the name of his grandfather, Ardashir. Ardashir is long dead at this point, so we know it can't be him. In Georgian, Hosroid is written as Hosroviani, which means descended from Hosrov. While we know this could technically be true, his father is probably Baram II. Now, let's move away from this tangent and return to our narrative. Baram gifted Mirian Armenia, Ran, Mokavan, and Hereti. This isn't accurate at all, but his placement in Kartli granted him a relatively peaceful and stable kingdom. However, the cries of a lonely child could be heard throughout the palace. Mirian probably missed his mother, who was being taken back to Persia with his father. The concubine would not be left in Mitasieta to raise her young son. Baram loved Mirian's mother as much as he loved himself, and could not bear to part with her. Instead, he left Mirian with a tutor and governor by the name of Mirvanoz, along with 40,000 select Persian horsemen. According to the oath that Baram gave to the Kartveli Eristavi, these horsemen were not allowed inside Kartli, but could be placed in the surrounding regions that Mirian was given as a wedding gift. It seems to me that these military troops were meant more as a way for Baram to control his new military acquisitions than as a gift for his young son. The tutor, Mirvanoz, was instructed by Baram to take 7,000 of these horsemen as a personal guard for Mirian. As a loophole so that the oath was not broken, these horsemen would be placed at the gates of the fortress. Since these soldiers were Persian, they were unable to mix with the local Kartveli populace. With Mirian now crowned as king of Kartli, Baram approached his sons Aristavi and asked them for a simple favor. To keep both nations at peace, Mirian must be allowed to worship Ahura Mazda, the primary deity in the Persian faith of Zoroastrianism, alongside the Armazi pantheon, to keep both religions in practice. The Aristavi agreed, especially since Zoroastrianism already made inroads into Kartli centuries prior. Leaving Mitisheta, Baran II traveled around the Caucasus region and ordered the surrounding tribes to swear fealty to Mirian. They acquiesced to the order, save the Assetians. With the Assetian disobedience, Baram ordered Mirian and Mirvanoz, the tutor, to go to war against the rebels. Baram returned to Persia soon after, and Mirvanoz took to his task diligently, as Mirian was too young to battle. Mirvanoz reinforced the fortresses of Kartli and the walls of the town of Nekresi. Back in Mitasheta, Mirian was growing up steadily and getting into his kingly rhythm. He served the seven deities of Armazi, worshipped Ahura Mazda diligently. Mirian was growing to love his time in Kartli, and was getting along swimmingly with the Kartveli populace. He loved his time so much that he was at a loss when he spoke Persian, and instead spoke Georgian rather fluently. In keeping with both faiths, he decorated the Armazi deities and treated his priests well. Mirian was noted for being more religiously diligent than any other Kartveli king, as he consistently observed ceremonies pertaining to the Armazi faith. He was so diligent that he took the time to decorate Parnavaz's grave. All of this he did due to his love for the Kartveli people. He treated the Kartveli kindly, exalted them in every way, and did them every kind of good that he could. 
The Kartveli populace grew to love him, and so much so that even Parzman the Valiant was not loved that much. Despite the adoration of the Kartveli, the skies soon grayed over Mitisketa. Mourning and wailing could be heard throughout the kingdom. Abishura, queen of Kartli and daughter of King Aspagor I, perished. With Abishura gone, and no child born from this marriage, the line of Parnavaz had completely died out. There would be no more Parnavazids ruling over Kartli. Things looked grim for Mirian. He was a 15-year-old boy, with no legitimacy behind him. Would the populace rebel against him now that their line of kings had been extinguished? The Kartveli had never faced such a situation before. There had always been someone with the bloodline to lead them, even if it came from a daughter of a previous king. The Aristavian populace looked to Mirian, staring. Their next action would determine the rest of his time on the throne. They chose to not rebel, and instead accepted Mirian III with love, as he had loved them. Join us in a month's time for the next installment of Mirian III's rule as we take a look at his kingship after the death of Abishura. In two weeks' time, Brendan and I will be discussing our year in podcasting, reading reviews, and answering some of the questions we've received. To support us, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacramento, Georgia, on Twitter at History underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacramento.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacadavello.georgia at gmail.com. Sacadavello is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. For more direct support, you can buy us a coffee. The link is in the episode transcription and on our website. Our Amazon wishlist is also available if you'd like to purchase a book for us. Also, a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast host goes a long way with getting the word out about the show and helping us reach new people to learn about Georgia. Madlaba Danakvamdis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. See you next time.